0: Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. This is weird, huh? When the cat's away, you know what I'm saying? Pastor Jonathan is in Peru. Pastor Paul went with him. And I defeated Pastor Pete in Indian leg wrestling for the privilege. I would never beat Pastor Pete in anything involving legs. That man is ginormous compared to me in height and stature. Well, it's good to be with you. It is a little weird, but I think we're going to be all right. Now, if y'all don't know yet, my name is Jonas. And I'm not from around here. And in the South, we define preaching as clearing a spot and throwing a fit. And I'm going to try to hold on to myself today. And we're going to let the Lord hopefully do what He wants to do. The name of our message today, the title for our sermon, just got a lot brighter. Suddenly there were way more of you than I thought there was a second ago. (laughs) You guys just watched the 8 o'clock. We'll call it good. Today's title is Learn It or Earn It. How many of you know, how many of you learned through someone else has taught you that a hot stove shouldn't be touched and you shouldn't put anything in an electrical outlet? Show of hands. How many of you earned that lesson because you touched that stove? Perfect. And real quick, just to find out who is an older sibling, how many of you talked someone else into touching a hot stove or putting something? I see that hand. Great. Counseling and prayer afterwards. Y'all go to the prayer teams at the end. One of the joys of being a parent, I am a parent, believe it or not, I have children. People, they just sent me home. They said, You got it. They were born. They said, You can have them. Here we are. They're 12. My son is 12. The girls are nine and seven. Very soon they'll be 12, 10, and eight, and it'll be easier for me to remember that again. And the, one of the joys of being a parent, because there are so, so many, <coughs> I'm told they're coming. Anyway, one. <laughs> Y'all, I haven't slept in 13 years. One of the joys of being a parent is figuring out if your kids are going to be learners or earners. You know what I'm saying? When it comes to these tests. Now, one of our kids was sick. They were little, very little. I think, I don't know, four, something like that, years old. And they had in Tennessee what we call the backdoor flu. You know what I mean? A little bubble gut. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay. So, I explained to them. We woke up. There was an incident. And we just explained, like, look, if you even kind of think maybe sorter, you're going to need to use the bathroom you got to get on it. Hot step it right on in there. Do what you got to do. All right. I felt like it was clear. We nodded. There were agreements. Yes, Daddy. Great. We have another accident. You say we. It was just them. It wasn't me. I promise this time. And they have another accident. All right. Hey, now remember, Daddy said, right? Listen to me. Now I've learned this lesson. You need to learn. Don't earn it. Learn it. Okay, Daddy. Two more accidents later, y'all. We're running out of clean britches. Okay. We're having a situation at the house. Now I am full-blown, you know, raising my voice in the name of Jesus. Listen, if you even think maybe that tomorrow you might feel the need or the urge, to, you got to get up and get in there. And they say to me, Daddy, I didn't feel like I needed to go to the bathroom. I just needed to Tootsie's. <laughs> ah, the lesson we learned, right? When you're sick like that, you can't trust the Tootsie's, right? So I said, okay. So I take that story. I go, I'm on staff at a church, I go to the deacon's meeting, it's mostly older dudes in this meeting, and I'm talking to the guy who's our chairman, he's at least, he's like 60-something years old, and I'm telling him the story, and Gary looks at me, and he goes, Buddy, you are in a room full of people who know better than to trust the Tootsies." (laughs) I said, all right, all right. So there are things in life that we learn, right? Other people tell us, they teach us, we learn, we go, okay, we just trust you in that. And then there are other things that are kind of earned the hard way, sometimes involuntarily, right? And we have a, a, an account this morning from Second Samuel chapter 15. Two of the primary people that we're dealing with are King David and his son Absalom. And we're going to go back and forth about things they've learned and things that they've earned. Now, chapter 15, <clears throat> excuse me, it starts out, if you, uh, if you got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. We're only going to be there for about a second before we got to get some context here. But Second Samuel chapter 15, we're finishing up our unstuck series. We're wrapping this up. They decided, hey, it's spring break, it's spring forward weekend, probably not a lot of people there, we'll let Jonas bring it home, so here we are, trying not to fumble at the finish line. That was two different sports analogies combined into one. Well, I wrestled, what do you want from me? Chapter 15 starts off, after this, now if you're like me, you want to know, well, what's the this? People kind of glaze over that part, don't they? After this, well, hang on, let's go back, let's figure out what the this was, And I don't know if y'all are familiar. I guess it depends on your age and your moral compass. But there's a show called Jerry Springer. Y'all, anybody ever heard of that? (laughs) We're going to get into some context. And if you start getting confused and lost, and you can't keep up with who's who and what's going on, that's because it's designed that way. Okay, David's family's got a problem. Last week, Pastor Jonathan finished talking about David and Bathsheba and their sin. That's all happened now. They have another son named Solomon. Great things are promised for him. David has some more military conquests. Uh, In the beginning, excuse me, of 2 Samuel, we find out about another son that David has. His name is Absalom, okay? So Absalom's been around for a little while. And Absalom's mama is the daughter of a king in a place called Geshur. That's important for later. Absalom has a sister with the same mama, okay? Her name is Tamar, and Tamar, we are told, is absolutely beautiful. David has another son, here we go, right, with a different woman. That son's name is Amnon. And that's hard to say, because you usually want to just be distinctive with an M or an N, and he's got both in the middle. So, Amnon is his name, and he is obsessed with his half-sister, Tamar. So much so that he is just lovesick, and everyone becomes well aware of it around him, including Amnon's cousin, Jonadab. Now, I don't know if it works this way in Alaska, but in Tennessee, if y'all are cousins, that means somebody's parents are related. And it turns out that Jonadab is the son of one of David's brothers, Shemiah. That's his name. I wasn't just saying a word there. Shman. <laughs> when are two of the only other times that we hear about David's brothers in the scriptures? It's when David is anointed king. After Samuel says, he brings, right? Obed brings all his sons and Samuel goes, pass, 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 pass. You got any more kids? Yeah, we got this one that nobody likes. He's out washing the sheep because we don't like him. All right, bring him in. So in front of all the other brothers, Samuel says, David, you're going to be king. David says, all right, time goes by, we get to the famous story of David and Goliath, and then David appears again and talking about his brothers, right? He's bringing them food and supplies to them and their commanders. And what are his brothers doing? Not fighting Goliath. Forty days, 40 days Goliath's out there throwing down the gauntlet saying, if anybody wants to fight, let's do it, let's settle this. And David shows up, thinks he knows what's going on. His brothers treat him like a little brother. It's the rite of passage, it's how it goes. And David says, put me in, Give me a rock, I'm going to handle this right now. David takes out Goliath, cuts off his head. We leave that out in children's church. Sorry, children, if you're in here, but it's like the coolest part of the story. We're just going to glaze it over, right? You're not going to paint that mural on the kid's wall. If they do, leave that church. I'm just telling you right now. Boys and girls, we're going to sit down and be quiet or else, right? Okay. So David's brothers, most likely, this is my insertion here, most likely not a huge fan of David. Probably not the best so jonadab is probably growing up not hearing great stories maybe about uncle david and how great he is so anyway jonadab and amnon get this plan together amnon ends up raping his half sister tamar david does nothing about it and two years later after that goes by david's other son tamar's brother can't stand it he has amnon killed go settles it it's a bad (laughs) it's a bad deal Remember Absalom's mama, though, right? She was the daughter of the king in Geshur. So Absalom has his brother killed, obviously knows that's not going to go great, takes off, he goes, runs, and lives with his granddad, who's the king, over in a different city. This is a bad deal. Absalom remains in Geshur with his grandfather for three years. Now David finds out about all this, of course, nearly uh, right away. He mourns for the death of Ammon until he's reconciled that, made his peace with it, like when their son with Bathsheba had passed away. And then in 2 Samuel 14, Joab, now Joab's a leader. Are you feel, Is this feeling crazy yet? Are y'all with? This is like scattered all over the place. The leader of David's army, Joab, decides, man, he needs to go get Absalom. David's sad. He misses Absalom because he ran off. And so he decides, I need to convince the king to bring Absalom back. So he hires a woman from Tikua. I don't know where that is. Anybody know where that is? That sounds like somewhere in Tennessee. He hires this woman from Tikua. He says, make up the story, convince the king. So he gives her a story to feed the king. She tells the story. I had two sons. One of them killed the other one. And now I'm worried everybody's going to kill the one who survived. Help me, king. And King David's like, cool. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of that one who survived. I got you. And she's like, but why? Why would you not do this for your own sons who killed? It's as dramatic as I can be. Sorry. And so David says, ah, I see the point that you're making here. Did Joab put you up to this? She says, yeah. So she she finds, or he rather, David finds out that Joab put her up to this. So finally, David, probably having flashbacks to when he's been confronted by Nathan the prophet, he says, all right, Joab's busted, but David has him go and get Absalom anyway. But he says, as punishment to Absalom, Absalom returns to Jerusalem, but he's not allowed to see the king. In fact, two years go by, he doesn't see the king. His punishment is to go live in his own house. That doesn't sound like punishment. I had to go to my own room which was also not my own. I had a brother who was in there. And so sometimes he would say, don't come in. But my dad said, go to your room. And so there I am in the hallway wondering who was going to kill me first, right? So Absalom gets sent to his own house. King says, I don't want to see him. So he brings him back. They're in the same city, but they're not spending any time together. They haven't seen each other. And eventually Absalom decides, this enough of this. We got to reconcile. I got to make things right between me and daddy. So he says, Joab, come on over here. We got to figure this out. Joab ignores him doesn't respond to him asking him to come. So Absalom asks again, sends for Joab, Joab doesn't come. So Absalom does naturally what any of us would do, hires his servants to set Joab's barley fields on fire. Wouldn't you know it, Joab shows up. That would get my attention. I don't have a field or barley, uh, but I think that that would bring my attention up to the forefront, and it did. Joab shows up, Absalom says, look, this is stupid. If I'm going to be here but never see the king, no reconciliation. Whatever. I might as well have stayed in Geshur. So he says, all right. So he arranges for David and Absalom to meet up. And in the end of chapter 14, when Joab asks Absalom, you know, what do you want? Absalom says, because I, I wanted to ask the king why he brought me back from Geshur if he didn't intend to see me. I might as well have stayed there. Let me see the king. If he finds me guilty of anything, let him kill me. So Joab told the king what Absalom had said. Then at last David summoned Absalom, who came and bowed low before the king, and he kissed him, and that was it. That made up. So now when we get into 2 Samuel, chapter 15, verse 1, and it says, after this, that's the this. (laughs) That felt significant, didn't it? It's not like after Tuesday, it was Wednesday. It was like years Literally years, five years minimum, is part of the story after Absalom kills his brother. So, after this, here we go. Second Samuel chapter fifteen. If I'm moving quick, y'all, I'm fired up. I'm excited. It's good. It's good to be here. So I'll try to slow down, and we'll see if that even happens. Chapter fifteen, Second Samuel, verse one. If you got your Bible, grab it. If your Bible, uh, I told the last service when we moved up here, I think something happened in the shipping container because my Bible is the same size, but all my print shrunk. I don't know if y'all are having that problem. That's a gift of my late 30s. Thanks, Lord. After this, verse, oh, oh wait, someone said. "Well, oh, Miss Pam, of course. <laughs> Just wait, says the woman holding a cane. All right, praise the Lord. <laughs> Honey, you don't even know. Let's get into the Bible quick, y'all. I'm gonna get off and running here. Chapter 15, verse one. After this, Absalom brought a chariot and horses, and he hired 50 bodyguards to run ahead of him seems excessive. He got up early every morning, went out to the gate of the city. When people brought a case to the king for judgment, Absalom would ask where in Israel they were from and they would tell him their tribe. Then Absalom would say, you've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the judge. Then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment and I would give them justice. Well, bless your soul. When people tried to bow before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and he kissed them. It's kind of weird. Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment, and so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. Brings me to my first point, which is, look at me. Nothing says, look at me like hiring 50 dudes to run out before you. We don't really have context for that today. We don't. We see a group of kids, you know, walking together. We think, "Mm mm-hmm, something's going on here. You see 50 people walking together out in front of one person. You're reaching, right? You're waiting to see what's going to happen. Absalom wants everyone to look at him. He's getting up early. Now, he's putting in the work, right? He's getting up early. He's going to the gate. This is where people would come when they wanted things dealt with as far as justice and the kingdom goes. And so Absalom's hearing cases. He's just volunteering his time. Man, what a great person. Bless him. Oh, if only there was someone to hear your case. I'll hear your case. I'll listen to you, right? He's, he's stealing the hearts of the people. He's just desperate for people to give him all the attention that he could possibly get out of them. But this is the first thing we read that Absalom's doing right after he makes amends with the king after years of drama. He's all but screaming it. Look at me. Let me help you guys. You deserve a judge. I can be that person. Instead of learning something the easy way about leading and leadership and being a king from his father's life, Absalom's going to earn something the hard way and that's this, do not seek the approval of the hearts of men instead of the heart of God. Had an old man tell me one time, by the way, anytime you hear me say anything worth its salt, it's either the Holy Spirit or an old man who was filled with the Holy Spirit who already told me, okay? Nothing is new under the sun. John Foreman said, good writers borrow, great writers steal. So nothing is going uh, to be original to me today, okay? Had an old man say to me one time, ask me how I know what not to do. And I thought, man, that's good. And I have been in student ministry prior to this, my wife and I, for about 17 years or something. And I had a lot of kids that, you know, would learn things from us. And I said, man, ask me how I know what not to do. And Absalom's going to earn some things the hard way. And this is the first one. Do not seek the approval of the hearts of men instead of the heart of God. Now, who was king before David? Y'all remember? Salt, man, y'all did way better than 8 o'clock, but don't tell them. In fairness, eight o'clock was actually seven o'clock. We know the truth on a lot of meat clock. I know the truth. Saul was the king, and one of Saul's biggest downfalls became this: Saul became so interested in pleasing the hearts of men instead of the heart of God first. That it started to wreck his leadership over and over again saul has this instance where they're they're waiting for the offering and the sacrifices to be made he's waiting for the priest to come to do it and he gets so impatient he becomes so nervous with what the people are going to think because it feels like it's taking so long for the priest to get there he says i got it i'm not the priest i'm the king but i can handle this and he does it and in the middle of it the priest shows up and says bro what are you doing he said well man you were late he said okay I mean, it starts when I get there. I'm the priest. I have my job. You're the king. You have your jobs. This is not like today when Pastor Jonathan's gone and we'll just put the worship pastor in. This is not how this worked in the Old Testament, right? You were a special person from a special tribe with a special assignment. That's how that worked. So Saul gets nervous. Once he's worried about what the people are going to think, does it himself. And then later we get back to that famous story of David and Goliath. Saul becomes so concerned with what other people are thinking that it leads him to paralysis in his leadership decision making. Goliath is throwing down this challenge day after day. Forty days, Saul can't figure out what to do to make everybody happy and not lose his power and authority and how he's going to look to the men. David saw this, and he learned this lesson. Absalom chooses not to, and instead he's going to earn some things the hard way. Whose approval, though, are you and I seeking first in our lives? Is it okay to seek the approval of others? I want my daddy to be proud of me. I want my mama to be proud of me, et cetera. That's okay. I want them to approve of me and the things that I do and what God's doing in my life. But whose approval are we seeking first? It gets real tricky real quick. We start getting confused. Well, who, who really am I pursuing? And the reality is that if we are in fact seeking the approval of God's heart above any others, then we will find ourselves doing God's will and the result will be God's glory. That's how we know. And if we begin to fall into the trap of seeking, pleasing our own hearts, pleasing the hearts of others, then it's going to be our will that we find ourselves in the middle of. And it's going to be our glory or their glory at the end of it. We lean too much sometimes on the heart. I've heard, I don't know how many graduation speeches of people telling kids, follow your heart. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. The heart is deceitful above all things. You know, there are people who you have given your whole heart to that you have wanted to murder with your bare hands. You can't trust that joker. Do not believe the heart. Trust the Lord. Trust his heart. Put that first. Seek the approval of his, and everything else will become the way that God desires it to be. Now, the second point is, hey, dude, watch this. It's the beginning of a lot of great stories. I would say, also, hold my beer is another one, but we're in church, so I don't want to say that. I'm going to take a drink and make you wonder. It's just honey and water. It's just honey and water. Y'all ever had an idea? You know what I'm saying? Like an idea. Something that's so dumb, you can't even say the devil made me do it because he's not that stupid. I don't know if y'all had these ideas growing up. I'm still there. I have those ideas, but now, thank God, I have a wife who said, no, baby, you can't do that. I love jelly. In fact, unbeknownst to the person this morning, just moments ago, right before church started, someone said, oh, I brought you a jar of raspberry jam. Hmm, praise God. Now, that's all I can do to keep it closed over there. I was about, I don't know, junior high, high school, early high school. My parents, they left me at home alone. Awesome. Listen, someone did that in the first service, too. Now, you don't know me. (laughs) You about to learn, though. You about to find, you know, you know. Your mother, Miss Pam, knows, that's true. I love jelly. The best part about peanut butter and jelly sandwich is a jelly sandwich, okay? Someone says otherwise, they're wrong. Peanut butter's good. Don't get me wrong. I like it. But jelly is where it's at. So I decide, I'm going to have me a full-on, th- I'm going to lay it on thick. We're going to have some jelly. And then I realized nobody is home. I'm in charge. I'm the boss of me. I'm going to do a jelly sandwich. So I opened up the drawer to get out the knife to put on jelly on the bread. And right next to the knife is a spoon. And I thought, hey. Why are we going to let bread get in the way of this? Let's pop this top on this jelly jar and get after it. So I did. And I had, I'm had i not talking, you know, spoonful of jelly. Oh, that's so good. I mean, you know that, that embarrassing noise you make when you think you're a little... <laughs> I'm pounding it. My stomach is killing me. I think the answer is more jelly, so I just keep going. I am sick from this incredible idea that I have. Absalom has been at the city gates, y'all. He is kissing hands and shaking babies. He's got himself an idea. And he has put this thing into motion. But y'all, I'm telling you, it's about as good of an idea as I have with that jelly. Jump with me. Verse 7, chapter 15. After four years, Absalom said to the king. So he's been doing this for a while, y'all, stealing the hearts of people. Absalom says, let me go to Hebron to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill a vow I made to him. For while your servant was at Geshur in Aram, I promised a sacrifice to the Lord in Hebron if he would bring me back to Jerusalem. All right, the king told him, go and fulfill your vow. It's like he's been a dad for two minutes, you know? So Absalom went to Hebron, but while he was there, he sent, a, he sent secret messengers to all the tribes of Israel to stir up a rebellion against the king. As soon as you hear the ram's horn, his message read, you are to say, Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. He took 200 men from Jerusalem with him as guests, but they knew nothing of his intentions. While Absalom was offering the sacrifices he sent for Ahithophel, one of David's counselors who lived in Galo, soon many others joined Absalom, and the conspiracy gained momentum. Absalom convinces his father that after five years, suddenly he needs to go and fulfill this vow. Now, if you're a parent, that means you have children. And one thing you know about children is, at the least convenient time possible is when suddenly... Something needs to be done. No one is more thirsty suddenly in my house than my children when I say, all right, it's time to be quiet. I'm not tired. You don't have to go to sleep. You just got to go in that room and don't make noise. I don't care whatever else you do. But suddenly Absalom has this idea and David hoping that he had a change of heart while he was in exile for murdering his brother. I don't know. hopes that it's true. He says, you go ahead and do this. And then Absalom starts to recruit people. Now, have y'all ever been a part of somebody else's idea? If you have older siblings, you have been a part of somebody else's idea. My brother and I were kids. We were living in Memphis. We were young. I don't know. We were 8 and 10, something like that. We might have been younger. And we were riding our bikes, and we decided we want to go faster. And my brother decided the best way to do that is if we tie our bikes together. It sounded like a great idea. I was in. Now, we didn't tie one like around his seat and then straight back to the base of my handlebars, because then that would be him pulling my chubby butt. Now, listen, y'all. You already heard me tell you I love jelly. I'm telling you, I was 4'2", both directions. four two, 150 pounds. We would go into the department store, and my mother would say, where's your husky section? My son, he's husky. Because she needed to announce that. We couldn't just look for the sign. I'm sorry, I'm getting into counseling here. Forgive me. So we knew he didn't want to pull me because that wasn't going to make us go faster. So we got smart. We took my sister's jump rope, and we tied our handlebars together next to each other. Yes. Full send. We're going down the road. I'm telling you, we were this close to a Guinness Book World Record. We're at Mach 1. We're hitting Mach 2. And we are just ripping it down the asphalt. And then we had to turn. <laughs> we were not going very fast anymore. We fell to the ground very hard. And I don't know who, we mixed up teeth. It was a mess, y'all. It was It was a nightmare. We got to be careful, right? Absalom starts grouping people in. 200 of these dudes don't even know what they've become a part of. Other people, they absolutely know. He sends them out as spies. When you hear this noise, you start yelling that Absalom is king. And Absalom's rebellion begins to grow, and it finds success. And once again, instead of learning something from those who had gone before him, the easy way, he's going to choose to earn something the hard way. Now, remember, who was king before David? Saul. You guys are good. You guys don't need that extra hour of sleep. Don't believe what they tell you. That's that's right. Saul is king before David. Excuse me. There's an encounter in 1 Samuel where David learns firsthand that you do not stage or execute a rebellion against God's appointed authority. Under what not to do at the top of that list David learns, do not stage a rebellion against God's appointed authority. Saul was still king. He's hunting David. And when you hunt something, your intent is typically to what? Kill it. They can't find David anywhere. He's hiding all over the place with his warriors and stuff. And Saul decides, we got to take a break. i got to go to the bathroom. He goes into the cave. This is a true story. This is not me just making another bathroom reference, okay? He goes into this cave. Well, unbeknownst to him, David and his men were already actually hiding in this exact same cave, just a little bit deeper in. So so David and his homies are like, this is it. In fact, David's some of his trusted guys who have been his, with him the whole time, excuse me, they're telling him that God himself put Saul in this cave specifically so that David could kill him and take the throne, that he had been anointed eventually to be the king and take, but that still didn't make it a good idea. David kind of gives in just a little bit in the beginning. So he creeps up on Saul. He's close enough that he gets his robe, and cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Y'all know that feeling when you find a good hiding spot? You get all weird in your tummy? And then you got to go to the bathroom because you're all nervous, right? David is this close, and he cuts off a piece, and as soon as he does it, the Bible tells us that something bothered him in his conscience, and he backs away, and he tells us, guys, this, this isn't it. This is not what I'm supposed to do. So eventually Saul finishes up. He goes out of the cave, and once he's a safe distance away, David comes to the cave And makes it known. He hollers down at Saul. That's what you do in the South. You holler at somebody. And he tells him, look, man, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Because I'm not going to repay evil with more evil. You are God's appointed king. Right now, God is the one who has you in authority over me. And so my job is to not do that, to not rebel against that. Even though Saul was hunting him and all these things. There will always be a million ways that we can convince ourselves that an idea that we've got all of a sudden is the right idea, but that doesn't make it right. In this case, for Absalom, it makes it quite wrong. In fact, if we're not already in tune with the Holy Spirit, when those opportunities come, we're not going to feel anything. We're going to go forward with it. I tell people all the time when they're sharing a moment of conviction with me, they feel broken, they feel guilty. And I said, listen, that's good that you're responding to that, but you need to know that feeling guilty, something pricking your conscience and stopping you, is a reason to pause and rejoice and give thanks. That is a sign that God has changed your life, that he has redeemed you through the name and the power and authority of Jesus Christ, and that his Holy Spirit lives within you, and that when you went to do something that God did not want you to do, the Holy Spirit convicted you, and that thing in your conscience clicks. Now, people may feel guilty for doing wrong things, but you don't feel bad in your conscience. You don't have that conviction in your heart if you don't have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you, telling you, no, you shouldn't do this. So when you find yourself in that moment of failure, that's all right, but rejoice if your conscience has been activated, you have that guilt because you know it's sin. Rejoice because Christ is king and he's king of your heart. Celebrate that he would stop you from making it worse than you already did. Otherwise, if he is not within you, you find yourself in a position like Absalom did, pursuing one terrible idea after another. The enemy wants us to live in the shame and the guilt that comes from bad decision-making, but God says, no, rejoice, For I've told you that that's wrong, and now you know it, and you're responding to that in obedience. (sighs) Come on. Praise God. (laughs) Praise God. In verses 13 and 18, David is told by a messenger, look, he says, the hearts of the people are with Absalom. So David tells himself and 600 men that are with him, pack it up. We got to go. We got to start getting out of town. So finding out that Absalom... Uh, it, he's having to pack up and get out of, the, out of the city Seemingly begins to kind of take its emotional toll on David And that brings me to my next point, which is Eeyore If y'all think I didn't make sure that's how you spelled that About a hundred times before I put it up here, you are wrong That's the most country way to spell something I've ever seen in my life Eeyore, E, now double E, make it a double E Your, Y, Y-O, anyway, forgive me Y'all know Eeyore, Winnie the Pooh, he's the donkey. He is someone who's a a Debbie Downer. Uh, He would be a glass half-empty kind of guy if his glass wasn't always knocked over, you know what I mean? Yeah, or broken, that's right. I threw in a couple of quotes here. It's Eeyore looking at this shabby, sad excuse for a house, and he says, well, this is my best Eeyore impersonation, not much of a house, just right for not much of a donkey, Don't worry. Don't feel bad for Eeyore. He's dramatic. Oh, my gosh. Come on, (laughs) y'all. He's purple. Yeah, that would make me feel weird, too. Don't worry about me. Go and enjoy yourself. I'll stay here and be miserable. It's kind of like with my seven-year-old. Every day, bless her, she's my favorite seven-year-old. Every morning, she says to me, Daddy, where are you going? I said, well, baby, I'm going to work. And with her whole body, she goes, again. (laughs) The baby I am with you. (laughs) But in order for me to stay with you, I have to leave you for just a little while. God bless every mother who stays home with their children, man. Mm. Praise God. Anyway, on his way out of town with 600 men and then some, David is seemingly starting to turn into a little bit of an Eeyore. But let's check out some of these verses that we have that are maybe a little bit indicative of that. In verse 19, Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite. What a a name. Ittai the Gittite. (laughs) I'm telling y'all, these people are country. Why should you go with us to return and stay with your king? Absalom's not king. That's not how that works. You came only yesterday, so should I make you wander with us today while I go wherever I go? return and take your brothers back. Then the king says to Zadok, or Zadok, however you want to pronounce that, return the ark of God to the city. David doesn't even want nice things with him, let alone extra people. He tells him to take it back. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you. And then finally, and David was going up uh, the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, his head was covered, and he was walking barefoot. Y'all, if ever there were some indic- indicative things about him turning kind of into an eeyore, It seems like this is some of them. First of all, is Absalom actually king? No. Let me tell you, if the way it works is you just get a bunch of people to say you're king. Here we go. On three, I want y'all to say Jonas is king. You ready? One. Hurts my feelings when y'all laugh. I'm being serious. That would have been awesome. King for a day. King Jonas. Put that on the website. Who's in charge of the media? Please don't do that. When's Jonathan coming back? I hear over here. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Praise the Lord. No, he's not king. He got a bunch of people to agree to say that when he makes a, a noise with a ram's horn. He got some other people unknowingly to follow him, but he's not king. So I wonder if at all, if David is only appearing to be turning into kind of an Eeyore. If we look at David's life as a whole, I think that we get a better picture and a better understanding of what David's actually doing. Maybe the man after God's own heart is a man who has learned humility and learned how to deal in humility with his enemies. Maybe he's somebody who sees a young man making foolish decisions who remembers himself being a young man who had made foolish decisions. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's what I'm inferring, at least, I guess. We talked earlier, uh, we kind of brought in this element of pride, and pride is it's an overestimation or a misunderstanding of our purpose and our ability What I mean is, Absalom began to assume that his purpose was to be king. It was not. It was pride that told him that, that he deserved to be king. And he thought he could do it. He overestimated his ability. You ever, ever, ever uh, overestimated your ability? We don't have time, but man, I got stories. we We can grieve together over those and rejoice that God is good. But it would stand to reason that humility is the opposite of those things, that David had a firm understanding of his purpose. And he certainly, at this point in his life, had a firm understanding of his ability. If we look at verses 25 and 26, and we read them all the way through in this chapter 15, verse 25 says, Then the king instructed Zadok to take the ark of God back into the city. David said, If the Lord sees fit, he will bring me back to the ark in the tabernacle again. But if he's through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. That sounds an awful lot like somebody who understands his purpose is to serve God and that if God's done with that, that's all right, it's time. That sounds an awful lot like somebody who knows the best way to uh, defeat pride is to be humble and accept that maybe his time has come and that it's not always his job to teach his son everything, that he's going to have to earn some things the hard way on his own if he keeps making the decisions that he's made. David's crew is over three times the size of Absalom. He's got 600 dudes, and he's not even recruiting yet. This is just people who volunteered to go with David. He tried to send them back. Some of them said, no, we're going to stay here. David knows, right? He fought Goliath. He knows it's not always about size, strength in numbers. It's about strength in who you're serving. Talked a lot about Absalom earning things the hard way, but David had done some of this too whether it was through the account of Bathsheba or several other instances that we have in Scripture, David knew not to assume that you're a failure just because you failed. What not to do? Assuming failing means that you are a failure. If you are in this room, you have failed, not because you came to this room today. <laughs> Although I guess we, at this point, who knows, we could argue anything. Every person in this room has failed, and some of us feel stuck in this failure. Flip, if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn. This one's not going to be on the screen, I don't think. Turn to Luke chapter 4. If it looks like I'm struggling to see these words because they're so tiny, that's exactly what's going on, I promise. Chapter 4, we get this, it's it's titled, The Temptation of Jesus. Jesus has just finished being baptized. He's coming up out of the water, and he's headed out into the desert. And we start at verse 4, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread And Jesus answered him, It's written that man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem. And had him stand in the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until a more opportune time. Where Absalom and David And you and I and countless others have failed. Christ perfectly succeeded. Always. Facing the temptations of pride and power, one person after another has failed all throughout history, but not Jesus. Jesus was tempted in these things and in all things, the scripture tells us. He was was tempted in all ways that you and I find common to ourselves, and he was tempted in ways that are unbelievable to us. I don't know if anyone's ever, if you've ever had that experience, I've never had anyone take me up and say, hey, man, I can make you the king of the world. Just bow down before me. I've never had that. But Jesus faces this and more in a perfect way. The way out of pride is always humility, and humility is always what Jesus chose. Scripture is clear that he was so humble that he took our form. He became a person. He left heaven, took on the form of a human being, came down to earth, pays the price for our sins, died, buried, resurrected, rose again so that we could have eternal life. He went to that form, that level, of humility for you and i these men would continue to lose sight of their purpose and overestimate their ability but not jesus not one time was he confused about his purpose about his purpose not one time was he uncertain or overestimated his ability would you stand and join me we bring this to a close here jesus knew that his purpose was to glorify the father in heaven He knew that he had all power in heaven and on earth, yet he did not yield to using that power for anything other than the purpose of glorifying God. This series is called Unstuck. Some of us have been stuck, some of us are stuck, some of us are gonna get stuck. That's just kind of the way that life works. And the way out is the same way then as it is now. That's through Jesus. Absalom Absalom didn't get it together. And David didn't get it together. But God said, one day through your line will come the perfect son of David. His name is Jesus, and Jesus only has it together. And if you and I have any hope of getting unstuck from the things that are going on in our lives, whatever they may be, it's going to be only through Christ. If we're going to get unstuck from seeking the approval of the hearts of men, if we're going to get unstuck from rebelling against God's authority in our lives, We want to get unstuck from our failures of sin so that we don't feel like a failure just because we failed. It can only be through the power and the authority and the humility of Jesus. That's the hope that they had then. It's the hope that we have now, and it's the hope that we will always have is Jesus. Church, pray with me, please. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for your goodness and your mercy, Lord. I'm so blessed to pray all the time to be reminded that we would not know goodness or mercy if it were not for you and for your word, Father. Help us to honor you, to glorify you in all things, Lord. Help us to learn from your word, from those who have gone before us, and not strive in foolishness to earn things the hard way, Lord. It's not a badge of honor, it's just a sign of foolishness and pride and immaturity, Lord. So help us to be humble and to choose that, that we would not have to be humble. Thank you for your goodness all the days that you give us. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Church, our prayer ministry teams are going to be on the sides over here the room. If you need that, please go spend some time with them. We're so pumped that you came. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you for staying after you came. All right, and you found out it wasn't going to be Pastor Jonathan up here. And please be sure to say hey to the Napiers on the way out. Talk to them about their ministry. Church on the Rock, God bless you. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.